This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. Today I'll be reading Collision Orbit and The Carnivore by Catherine McLean, published in 1954 and 1953, respectively. In today's hour, we are focusing on 1954 and we'll be playing avant garde music from that year. In the background, you're listening to Deserts, a piece by Edgar Varese. It was composed between 1950 and 1954 for woodwinds, 14 of them, uh, five percussion players, one piano, and electronic tape. According to Varese, the title is in reference to not only the physical desert of sands, sea, mountains, and snow, outer space, desert city streets, but also distant inner space, where man is alone in the world of mystery and essential solitude. Ferez began the tape composition upon the anonymous gift of an Ampex tape recorder using electronic sections based on factory sounds and percussive instruments. He was... He worked on the piece in Pierre Schaeffer's studio at Radio Diffusion Television Francais and at Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. Uh, the piece may be performed without electronic tape portions, reducing its length by seven minutes. And it was originally composed without electronic music. Um, the first performance of the combined orchestra and tape sound composition was part of an ORTF broadcast concert in front of a totally unprepared and mainly conservative audience. With deserts wedged between Mozart and Tchaikovsky, it received a vitriolic reaction from both the audience and the press. Um, the first concert was at Théâtre de Champs-Élysées in Paris on December 2nd, 1954 with Herman Scherchen conducting and Pierre-Henri in charge of the tape. The performance that we are now listening to was conducted by Kent Nagono and performed by the Orchestre Nationale de France. Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. Next, I'll be reading Collision Orbit by Kathleen McLean, which was first published in Science Fiction Adventures May 1954 under uh, K. McLean.
The mountain men who opened up the frontier in the West weren't settlers. They were trappers, traders, fighters, and gunmen. The men who didn't fit back home. The kind of men who will be needed on the frontier of space. I was drowsing when I heard the airlock clanking and banging. Anyone can come into my ship, glance through the magazines, play the films, and select food from the stock without me bothering to wake up until they're ready to buy something. But this sound was different. By the way, they were clanging and cursing and trying to get the airlock to work. They were strangers. I came wide awake. Last month's load of news from Earth had some interesting stories. Four convicts were missing from New San Quentin. There had been a bank robbery three days later, with a real terrific haul of money taken. After that, the Earth-to-Moon lift ship had taken off with apparently a full load. But six of the passengers never reported in on the moon after the ship landed and were considered missing and one of them had been found dead on Earth a mile away from the takeoff point. An hour and a half after the lift ship had landed at Luna, the spaceship Phoebus of the Luna to Phoebus Mars run took off suddenly without waiting for cargo and vanished into space with only her pilot and first engineer known to be on board. The news was months old by the time it got to me, but it was easy to add those three items up. The convicts had the ship and were heading for the asteroid belt. Well, here they were at the asteroid belt. First stop, Sam's place. I grinned slightly and unscrewed two of the knobs on the radio, one back in the wrong place, and put the other under the counter. Then I switched the radio on to send, in spite of the fact the knob said receive. They were coming. Yawning, I swung around on my revolving chair. Careful with the airlock. Air's not free around here. They crowded in, four figures, muffled in heavy spacesuits, with green globes concealing their heads. Don't move, mister. Two guns were suddenly pointed at my middle. Good evening, gentlemen, I said amiably. I was expecting you would drop in. What can I sell you? You didn't expect us, fatty, said one, taking off his helmet and showing a young haggard face that needed a shave. He snickered nervously, put out his hand, and was given a gun by a one who reached up and began taking off his own helmet. The young one was nervous, but not stupid. For with the gun pointing steadily at me, he moved quickly to one side as far as he could get. He was leaning against the front wall to cover me from the opposite direction of the gun holder. Whatever ideas I had about maneuvering one in front of the other and grabbing a gun vanished right then. Shove that funny talk, mister, said the other, a husky with a stiff crew cut. We're not buying anything. We're taking this place over. The other two had their helmets off now, 
There was a big, thoughtful-looking one who went over to look at the supplies, and a lean one who went off looking for the can. They all looked haggard, underfed, and tired. Probably they were haggard from having trouble holding down their food. Space sickness gets practically anyone the first months out. The big one wandered into the stacks of supplies and began opening cartons and nibbling anything edible. That made me mad, but I didn't say anything. Just got up and looked to see what he was opening, and almost got shot as the young gunman's hand jerked nervously at my motion. Sit down and turn off those neon signs and radio beams. We got to get moving. Yeah, said the husky one, as if surprised that he'd think of it. Turn them off. There was a big neon sign wrapped around my ship saying, Hams. I flipped a couple of switches and it went off for the first time in a long time. There was also a set of swinging radio beams, like lighthouse beams which said Sam's merchandise in my voice. It was a sound that spacemen could home in on when they ran out of food or something broke and they needed a spare part. I flipped another switch, and that went off too, for the first time since I'd set it up. A lot of men depended on that radio beam. But I didn't expect it would stay off long. The radio was humming quietly at record, as if waiting for incoming calls. What it was doing was broadcasting everything that was said inside the store. It wasn't beaming at anyone, so the signal was weak. But anyone who wanted to know why my homing beams had gone off could find out by tuning to my frequency and listening. Ferguson's place was on my orbit, somewhere close ahead. If he noticed me go by, he'd wonder why I didn't stop to deliver the mail and the groceries. All I had to do was stay alive for a while, or make sure they killed me in a certain way. Man the controls, mister, said the husky one. Take us out of here before someone comes to see why the lights went off. Any direction, added the big man who was chewing at his supplies. He had an easy, deep drawl. We'll tell you later where to go. The fourth man came out of the can and laughed at that, bringing clear the idea that I wasn't going to be around for long. Abruptly, I realized I had made a bad mistake. Wait a minute, I said, letting myself sound startled. I'm not wearing my coverall. I was wearing my jockey shorts, nothing else, and I figured that they think I was modest. I spotted the coverall lying across a case of Algin butter and reached for it. Mind? The husky one with the gun waved it at me. Get those jets going, he snarled. Stop stalling around. Let him put on his pants, smiled the big one, coming forward again with an open magazine in hand. No reason for anyone 
to be closer than a thousand miles. People spread thin in space. They won't all arrive here for a picnic before he gets dressed. I didn't wait for the gunman's nod, just took a chance and grabbed the coverall to put it on. They did not object again, apparently taking the big one's say as the final word. The coverall slipped silkily over bare feet and legs, pulled up and zipped tight to cover body, arms, and hands comfortably in thin, flexible, silky fabric with a fancy-looking collar, high behind the neck, low and open in the front, and held in shape by the edge being a light metal ring with another light metal ring and a little mirror-like lip plastic hanging down the back attached from the collar like the space suitish touches that were the style in men and women's coats on earth the material had a mixture of slow and fast elastic threads so that it fitted like skin but gave easily with every motion and it was painted with a coat of aluminum so that it shone like a flexible mirror. It was an intensely practical outfit, used by almost everyone in the belt. The rest of mankind didn't have anything like it. Given amateur necessity, and not much material to work with, and he can out-invent any hired export. But it looked useless, ornamental, and gaudy, and I did not catch much of a figure in it. Lots of people get fat around the waistline in space. Something to do with not enough exercise for the legs. No place to walk to. I looked like I'd just put on a coat of aluminum paint and a fancy collar, and I knew it. There were stares and grins. Let them laugh now. Why, look at that. A silver-plated man. Isn't he purdy? Look at those muscles bulge. Or are they muscles? I clenched my teeth together, climbing into the pilot's chair, and pushed the steering rod forward, cautiously, until I could feel the jets beginning to thrust. The big one, the one who's probably the brains of the outfit, came forward and leaned over my shoulder, watching what I was doing. He chewed crackers noisily beside my ear, and turned the pages of a magazine. Well, we're stocked back there. Enough food and entertainment for a year. It's all due to the customers, I said. Two months worth per person to be delivered here and there. I was bearing down on an irregular shaped lump of rock on the screen that was probably Ferguson's camouflaged place. It turned red on the screen meaning I was on a collision course. I couldn't tell that it was Ferguson's without having the radio open to his signal. But if that was his place, probably all his alarm bells were ringing inside, and he was screeching into his mic, trying to warn me to change course. I moved the control rod a notch sideways to avoid it, and the screen turned it white again, showing it was no longer a danger. How about putting on some more speed, drawled the thinker. 
He was used to having people take his advice. It showed in his voice. Don't want to shift the cargo. Might break the eggs. I pushed the rod forward a notch more. And with the extra fraction of a gee acceleration, the inertia pulled towards the rear grew noticeable, and everyone stood slanted as though the floor was tilting back. Eggs? They all laughed nervously. I could tell from the sound they still weren't used to space travel, and the tilting floor had them all queasy again. Yet yeah, eggs, I said irritably. It took me $1,500 to have them ship a box of fertilized eggs and hatching chickens out here. That's an investment. Enough to make sure there's eggs for the store. You're kidding, asked the young gun holder and laughed. Where are the chickens? Some of the boys took on the job of raising them. Few boys will tell me your specialties. Safe cracking or what. I'll tell you what kind of job you'll fit. For an instance, there was an angry, surprised silence. Then the nervous gun boy, with a smile that was half a snarl, walked over behind me and clunked me on the side of the head with his gun. Not hard, just enough to hurt, as a little warning. Look, fatty, we aren't here to apply for a job. You'll be working anyhow, I said. The blow that hit my head that time crossed my eyes for a minute. The young gunman's voice was pitched almost to a falsetto with irritation. We don't need any work. We got 900000 to hide out with until it cools down, and we ain't going to spend it buying eggs. The husky made a reproving noise, and the gun boy turned on him defensively and barked. Why not tell him? He won't tell anybody anything after now. I had not expected them to keep me around their hideout for a pet after they took the store back to the stolen spaceship, but this sounded like I was closer to getting a bullet in the back of the head than I expected. We won't need him for a pilot much longer, the brains of the gang said calmly, still looking over my shoulder. He had not made a sound of objection when the kid clunked me. The way I see him working this rig... You just push that stick forward to go, sideways to turn, and harder to go faster. If you're going to hit anything, the screen turns it red, and you steer around. Simple. I can handle the piloting myself. I hadn't expected him to catch on to the way the controls worked. Suddenly, they didn't have any use for me, and no reason to keep me alive. I had to give them a reason, and fast. I turned and grinned. You better try another tack, boys. Or you're likely to find yourselves kicking in space with your space suits off. I should have planted the idea sooner. This late, talking big, might set off those already tightening triggers. Nobody pulled any triggers. They were a cool bunch. Find out what he means, said the brains. He slid calmly into the control seat as the others yanked me out and wrestled his hands lightly on the control rod. Maybe he wasn't kidding when he said he expected us. They dragged me upright, and the husky swung a blow to my wind. It didn't penetrate. 
I kept fit. He looked surprised when I didn't double up. Blubber, he growled uncertainly, rubbing his fist. You got a trap for us? Talk quick. He rubbed his knuckles and looked at my nose. I value my nose. No trap. There are better ways of approaching the belt than you boys are using. The woods are full of fugitives. I'll give any of them a stake and a start and a place to live where no one knows the orbit but the guy who delivers supplies. That's me. But if you try anything else... He grunted something and swinging, and I barely moved my nose out of the way before getting a fist in the face. The second swing connected and made my nose a throbbing, radiating ache in my face. The two men at my arms hung on while I tried to pull loose and get at the husky, and we thrashed around the room for a few moments until I pulled off, and they brought me back, standing, facing him. He was getting impatient, heaving a pistol by his barrel like a short club. He glanced from it to my face. Spit it out! Behind me at the controls came the brain's smooth drawl. It was probably running us into a trap. I've changed course. Brother, I said, breathing through my mouth. If you do anything to me... While I was talking, they let me turn to the brains, and he swung around to look at me. I kept talking. If you do anything to me, you're running yourself into a trap. I've got friends. Around here, when people get obnoxious, they're likely to find themselves stuffed alive into a garbage chute, and the lover pulled for them to go fight space if they make trouble. It's an interesting way to die, and it doesn't leave a mark. During that speech, the brains and I were staring into each other's eyes. I jerked my head sideways to indicate the garbage chute when I mentioned it, and his glance flicked over to see where it was, and then locked with mine until I finished talking. Then he spoke coldly. You've named it, Buster. He looked at the others. Stuff this bag of wind down the garbage chute, and make sure he's conscious. It took all three of them some fifteen minutes to do it. I was careful to keep the fight away from the supplies so as not to break anything, but otherwise I gave a good briar rabbit imitation of a man fighting to stay away from his death. Their faces were the only part that stuck out of their spaceship suits, but I bent Gunboy's nose, almost closed both of number four's eyes, and made a good try at yanking off part of Husky's left ear. I don't like being called fatty. They got mad enough to have shot me, but they had already put their guns away to make sure I'd be alive to appreciate what was going to happen to me. For one lucky moment in the scramble, I had all three of them tripped and down and had a knee on Gunboy's back, fishing in his spacesuit leg pocket for his gun. Then somebody kicked me in the groin. I lost track of what was happening and just tried to breathe. When I came back to, noticing anything, they were busy stuffing me in the garbage chute, putting muscle in to straighten me out from my curled-up crouch and making laughing cracks about it being a tight fit. 
I clawed to get out and tried to choke down a few more deep breaths. But I was still too jangled inside and too weak for my arm waving to bother them. They pushed my head down with the lid, clanged the lid on, and locked it in place. It cut off the sound of their laughing to a distant murmur. Then someone must have found and pulled the disposal lever. The bottom of the chute opened. Air pressure fired me out into space, like a human cannonball from a circus cannon. For a moment, I flung end over end the multicolored lights of the Milky Way and the intermittent, harsh, burning glare of the sun flashed into my naked eyes. Then I shut my eyes tightly, while the pressure of air bulged my chest out and whooshed it out my mouth, pushing it open like a soft, expanding pillow. I clenched my eyes more tightly closed. I wasn't going to explode like the characters in Vizzo's stories. Pressure drop was enough for that, because I never kept more than three pounds pressure in the store atmosphere anyhow. A pressure drop like that can't kill, but it might rupture the blood vessels in my eyes. Like a mouse trap, the ring that hung down from the back of my collar swung up on a hinge, bringing a collapsed balloon of mirror-coated plastic over my head and swung down past my face, nearly taking off the tip of my battered nose. As it clanked into place over the collar ring, suddenly the air pushed out of my lungs, filled the soft plastic bag, and it expanded with a pop into a helmet globe, dark transparent from the inside, mirror-coated on the outside, to reflect most of the sun's destructive glare. I was protected by an emergency spacesuit. From the outside now, I looked like a solid silver figure with a round silver sphere instead of a head. The mousetrap spring on the helmet globe was set to dangle down the back, and its catch was supposed to hold it back there until a sudden pressure drop expanded a tiny balloon under the catch and slipped the spring free. I tested them in space before distributing them. But this was the first time my coverall had been tested with me in it, and I found myself considerably surprised and grateful that it really worked. There wasn't much air in the emergency head globe with me. I should have been breathing heavily up to the last minute to store oxygen in my blood, but the kick had stopped that. There was barely enough breath to pray with. I had to be lucky twice. My second guess had to be right, too. It was. Just about the time I could no longer tell the sun from the spinning bursts of white light in my head, Ferguson's scooter showed up alongside with its jet's trailing blue light and his anxious face peering out. After that, I was out of the fight. For three hours, the store went on, picking up more and more quiet little scooters as the settlers trailed after, the interesting conversation being broadcast by my radio. They followed closely, but always a little to one side, so none of them ever went on collision course and rang an alarm in the store control board. They were quiet and inconspicuous, 
listening on their radios with great interest to the talk of $900,000 and to the fugitives' talk of hiding out with the supplies in the store. It was not until my stolen ship came to a meeting place where it floated the huge, shiny, expensive Phoebus, the ship they had taken from the commercial line. Not until the convicts began coming out the airlock to go back to the Phoebus. Not until then did the scooters close in. The settlers brought my store back to me, its thin walls plugged full of holes and patched, and brought back one survivor, Mr. Brains. He must have needed brains to survive, since the settlers had probably been over-enthusiastic in the capture. I did not ask what became of the other five convicts, or the kidnapped pilot and the first engineer of Phoebus. I believe in being tactful. I took the survivor's fingerprints and gave him a stake of supplies and a spin house to grow vegetables until he decided what kind of work he could do. We called a conference of all settlers over the radio to decide what to do with the loot, and on vote, divided up the 900,000 among us as a penalty to the brains for not using his brains, barging in and making a row when he could have found out on earth how to be smuggled out here quietly on the regular run. He had a vote too, and voted against it, but it didn't do him much good. We're a democracy, and one vote doesn't go far. 900,000 divided 50 ways is pin money, compared to the prices of things out here anyhow. Frontiers always get bad inflation. I sent the new one's fingerprints down to my strongbox in a bank on Earth. Everyone's fingerprints are in there, and everyone knows that any time I disappear, suddenly that box will be opened and the prints handed to the police. But I don't blackmail them, and they trust me to keep that box closed because my prints are in there too. It just makes everyone very careful of my health, so that they are inclined to resent outsiders trying to kill me. That's why I can leave the airlock open for anyone to walk in. I know when I'm safe. The parts of the Phoebus are coming in very handy for building. We'll have a city here yet. You could listen to five or six radio stations. Or just one. You could listen to five or six radio stations. Or just one. You could listen to five or six radio stations. Or just one. What if you could get all your rock, hip-hop, indie, sports, news, and more in one place? You can at KCSBFM, where we are hosting our annual on-air fun drive from February 21st to March 2nd. Our dedication to fresh and organic radio content means no matter what time you tune into KCSB, we're delivering the best of our music, sports, and news coverage, not to mention our many events for the campus and local community. All of this is possible thanks to your generous contributions. A minimum donation makes you eligible for one of our many thank you gifts, including vinyl records, gift certificates, concert tickets, and more. More information can be found on kcsp.org or on the KCSP Facebook event page. KCSP-FM, bringing flavor to your ears for 56 years.
this is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Uh, before the um, fun drive announcement, which is starting on the 21st, um, I read Collision Orbit by Catherine McLean, which was first published in Science Fiction Adventures, May 1954. In the background, um, you were hearing Deserts, uh, composed by Edgar Varez and Nons uh, for Orchestra by Lucinio Berrio, both composed in 1954. Now in the background, we are listening to Symphony No. 1, composed by André Jovlier, conducted by Georges Tepzin, performed by Orchestre Nationale de l'ORTF. Um, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about our author today, Catherine McLean. Uh, she was born in 1925 and is best known for her science fiction short fiction in the 1950s. Um, she had a BA in science and math from Barnard College and did postgraduate study in psychology and eventually became a quality control lab technician in the food factory and subsequently served as a college lecturer in creative writing and literature. Uh, she started working right she started writing science fiction while working as a lab technician in 1947. Um, she received a Nebula Award in 1971 for her novella The Missing Man, which was published in Analog March 1971. And she was honored in 2003 by Science Fiction Writers of America as a uh, author emeritus in... 2011, she received the Cordwainer Smith Rediscovery Award, which honors underread science fiction and fantasy authors with the intention of drawing renewed attention to the winners. Uh, according to Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, she was in the vanguard of those science fiction writers trying to apply to the soft sciences the machinery of the hard sciences. Um... She did this in a general optimistic reading of the potentials of that application. Her range and competence in dealing with technological matters may in part reflect the wide range of occupations outside of her literary life. Uh, despite this subject matter, her tone was generally that of hard sci, so she did mostly wrote soft sci, but her tone was generally hard science fiction, um, and her work was unconnected with that later new wave uses of the same basic material. Um, her work was strongly influenced by uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Bertalanifi's general systems theory, and her fiction often demonstrated a foresight in scientific advancements. Uh, next, I'll be reading The Carnivore by Catherine McLean. It was originally published in Galaxy Science Fiction, October 1953, under the pseudonym G.A. Morris. And she wrote under a series of pseudonyms, her, her own name, and frequently G.A. Morris. That will be up next.
Why were they apologetic? It wasn't their fault. They came to Earth much too late. The beings stood around my bed in air suits, like ski suits, with globes over their heads, like upside-down fish bowls. It was all like a masquerade, with odd costumes and funny masks. I knew that the masks are their faces, but I argue with them and find, I think, as if I'm arguing with humans behind the masks. They are people. I recognize people, and whether I am going to like this person or that by something in the way they move and how they get excited when they talk. And I know that I like these people in a motherly sort of way. You have to feel motherly towards them, I guess. They all remind me of Ronnie, a medical student I once knew. He was small and round and eager. You had to like him, but you couldn't take him very seriously. He was a pacifist. He wrote poetry and pulled it out to read aloud at ill-timed moments. And he stuttered when he talked too fast. They're all like that, all frightened and gentleness. I'm not the only survivor. They have explained that. But I am the first they found and the least damaged, the only one they have chosen to represent the human race to them. They stand around my bed and answer questions and are nice to me when I argue with them. All in a group, they look halfway between a delegation of nations and an ark, one of each, big and small, thick and thin, forearms or wings, all shapes and colors in fur and skin and feathers. I can picture them in their UN of the universe, making speeches in their different languages, listening patiently without understanding each other's different problems boring each other and being too polite to yawn. They are polite, so polite, I almost feel they are afraid of me, and I want to reassure them. But I talk as if I were angry. I can't help it, because if things had only been a little different. Why couldn't you have come sooner? Why couldn't you have tried to stop it before it happened? Or at least come sooner? Afterward? If they had come sooner to where the workers of the Nevada power pile starved slowly behind their protecting walls of lead if they had looked sooner for survivors of the dust with which the nations of the world had slain each other George Craig would have been alive he died before they came he was my co-worker and I loved him we'd gone down together passing door by door the automatic safeguards of the plant which were supposed to protect the people on the outside from the radioactive danger from the inside. But the danger of a failure of politics was far more real than the danger of failure in the science of the power pile. And that had not been calculated by the builders. We were far underground when the first radioactivity in the air outside had shut all the heavy, lead-shielded automatic doors between us and the outside. We were safe, and we starved there. Why didn't you come sooner? I wondered if they knew, or guess how I feel. My questions are not questions, but I have to ask them. He's dead. I don't mean to reproach them, 
They look well-meaning and kindly, but I feel as if somehow knowing why it happened could make it stop, could let me turn the clock back and make it happen differently. I could have signaled to them, so they would have come just a little sooner. They looked at one another, turning their funny face heads uneasily, moving back and forth, but no one will answer. The world is dead. George is dead. That thin, pathetic creature with the bones showing through his skin that he was when we sat still at the last with our hands touching, thinking there were people outside who had forgotten us, hoping they would remember. We didn't guess that the world was dead, blanketed in radiating dust outside. Politics had killed it. These beings around me, they had been watching, seeing what was going to happen to our world, listening to our radios from their small settlements on the other planets of the solar system. They had seen the doom of war was coming. They represented stellar civilizations of great power and technology and with populations that would have made ours seem a small village. They were stronger than we were, and yet they had done nothing. Why didn't you stop us? You could have stopped us. A rabbity one, who is closer than the others, backs away, gestures politely that he is giving room for someone else to speak. But he looks guilty and will not look at me with his big round eyes. I still feel weak and dizzy. It's hard to think but I feel as if they are hiding a secret. A doe-like one hesitates and comes closer to my bed. We discussed it. We voted. It talks through a microphone in its helmet with a soft, lisping accent that I think comes from the shape of its mouth. It has a muzzle and very soft, dainty, long, nibbling lips like a deer that nibbles on twigs and buds. We were afraid adds one who looks like a bear. To us, the future was very terrible, says one who looks as if it may have descended from some sort of large bird like a penguin. So much, your weapons were very terrible. No, they were all talking at once, crowding around my bed, apologizing. So much killing, it hurt to know about, but your people didn't seem to mind. We were afraid. And in your fiction, the doe-like one lisped, I saw plays from your amusement machines, which said that the discovery of beings in space would save you from war, not because you would let us bring friendship and teach peace, but because the human race would unite in hatred of outsiders. They would forget their hatred of each other only in the new and more terrible wars with us. Its voice breaks into a squeak and it turns its face away from me. You were about to come into space. We were wondering how to hide. That is a quick-talking one, as small as a child. He looked as if he might have descended from a bat gray silking fur on his pointed face 
big night-seeing eyes and big sensitive ears with a humped shape on the back of his air suit, which might have been folded wings. We were trying to conceal where we had built so that the humans would not guess we were near and look for us. They are ashamed of their fear, for because of it, they broke all kinds of laws of their civilizations, restrained all the pity and gentleness I see in them, and let us destroy ourselves. I'm beginning to feel more awake and see more clearly, and am beginning to feel sorry for them, for I can see why they are afraid. They are herbivores. I remember the meaning of shapes. In the paths of evolution, there are grass eaters and berry eaters and root diggers. Each has its functional shape of face and neck and its wide, startled-looking eyes to see and run away from hunters. In all their racial history, they had never killed to eat. They had never been killed and eaten or run away, and they evolved to intelligence by selection. Those lived who succeeded in running away from carnivores like lions, hawks, and men. I look up, and they turn their eyes and heads in quick, embarrassed motion, not meeting my eye. The rabbity one is nearest, and I reach out to touch him, pleased because I am growing strong enough to now move my arms. He looks at me, and I ask the question, Are there any carnivores, flesh eaters, among you? He hesitates, moving his lips as if searching for tactful words. We've never found any that were civilized. We have frequently found them in caves and tents fighting each other. Sometimes we find them fighting each other with the ruins of cities around them. But they are always savages. The bear-like one said heavily. It might be that carnivals evolve more rapidly and tend towards intelligence more often, for we find radioactive planets without life and places like the place you call your asteroid belt, where a planet should be, but they are only scattered fragments of planet, pieces that look as if planet had been blown apart. We think that usually... He looked at me uncertainly, began to fumble his words. We think... Yours is the only carnivorous race we have found that was civilized, that had a science and was going to come out into space. The doe-like one interrupted softly. We were afraid. They seemed to be apologizing. The rabbity one seems to be chosen as the leader in speaking to me says we will give you anything you want anything we're able to give you they mean it we survivors will be privileged people with a key to all the cities everything free their sincerity is wonderful but puzzling are they trying to atone for the thing they feel was a crime that they allowed humanity to murder itself and lost the galaxy, their richness of a race? Is this why they are so generous? Perhaps, then, they will help the race to get started again. The records are not lost. 
the few survivors can eventually repopulate Earth under the tutelage of these peaceable races without the stress of division into nations we will flower as a race no children of mine to the furthest descent will ever make war again this much of a lesson we have learned these timid beings do not realize how much humanity has wanted peace they do not know how reluctantly we were forced and trapped by old institutions and warped tangles of politics to which we could see no answer we are not naturally savage. We are not savage when approached as individuals. Perhaps they know this, but are afraid anyhow. Instinctive fear rising up from the blood of their hunted, frightened forebears. The human race will be a good partner to these races. Even recovering from starvation as I am, I can feel in myself an energy they do not have. The savage in me and my race is a creative thing. For in those who have been educated, as I was, it is a controlled savagery which attacks and destroys only problems and ob obstacles, never people. Any human raised outside of the political traditions that the race inherited from its bloodstained childhood would be as friendly and ready for friendship as I am towards these beings. I could never hurt these pleasant, overgrown bunnies and squirrels. We will do everything we can to make up for... We will try to help, says the bunny, stumbling over the English, but civilized and cordial and kind. I sit up suddenly, reaching out impulsively to shake his hand. Suddenly, frightened, he leaps back. All of them step back, glancing behind them, as though making sure of the avenue of escape. Their big, luminous eyes widen and glance rapidly from me to the doors, frightened. They must think I'm about to leap out of bed and pounce on them and eat them. I'm about to laugh and reassure them, about to say that all I want from them is friendship when I feel a twinge in my abdomen from the sudden motion. I touch it with one hand under the bedclothes. There is a scar of an incision there, almost healed, and an operation. The weakness I am recovering from is more than the weakness of starvation. For only half a second, I do not understand. Then I see why they looked ashamed. They had voted the murder of a race. All those human survivors found had been made sterile. There will be no more humans after we die. I'm frozen, one hand still extended to grasp the hand of the rabbity one. My eyes still searching his expression, reassuring words still half-formed. There will be a time for anger or grief later. For now, in this instant, I can understand. They are probably quite right. We are carnivores. I know because, at this moment of hatred, I could kill them all. A special lecture by photographer Michael Eliasson about the Thomas Fire and Montecito mudslides. As public information officer for the Santa Barbara County Fire Department, 
Eliason had unique access to California's largest wildfire, its devastating impact, and the subsequent mudslides in Montecito. Eliason will illustrate his talk with a number of images, both of the fire and the debris flow. The lecture takes place on Tuesday, February 20th, 7.30 p.m. at Fleischmann Auditorium at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. For details, go to ccameraclub.com. On Tuesday, February 20th, UCSB Arts and Lectures presents playwright Tony Kushner and author Sarah Vowell and their conversation titled The Lincoln Legacy, The Man and His Presidency at UCSB Campbell Hall. Born in New York City, Kushner is the author of the award-winning play Angels in America and the screenplay for the 2012 biographical film Lincoln. Sarah Vowell is the author of several nonfiction books on American history and culture. Her most recent book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, was released on Riverhead in October 2015. This is an all-ages event. Doors open at 7.30 p.m. More information can be found at artsandlectures.ucsb.edu. KCSB is a media sponsor of this event. From March 1st to the 4th, the Puppet Palooza is taking over Santa Barbara. During this four-day period, workshops, performances, and exhibits for all ages will be taking place centered around the art of puppetry. Featured events include a meet-and-greet with the Muppets and the performers who bring them to life on Friday, March 2nd at the Marjorie Luke Theater at 6.30 p.m. This will include interviews, exclusive footage, and improvisation. A performance by award-winning marionettist Philip Huber at the Marjorie Luke Theater on Saturday, March 3rd at 5.30 p.m. Huber is known for his work on the 1999 Spike Jonze film, Being John Malkovich. And finally, a performance by puppeteer Terish Pimpkins at the Community Arts Workshop on Saturday, March 3rd at 12 noon. Among his attractions is a breakdancing dinosaur puppet, among others. More information, including tickets and a full list of events, can be found at puppetpaloozasb.com. KCSB is a media sponsor of this event.